Welcome to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and challenged today as you listen to a message from one of our speakers. Prepare your heart and get ready to receive a word from God today. Let's get rolling or we're never going to get done. I don't even know how much time I've got. Here we go. Um, Matthew 6, 9 through 11 says this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I'm not going to camp there, so don't go there. We're going to go to, if you've got your Bibles and you're shuffling, you're actually headed to Exodus 16, okay? You're headed to Exodus 16. All right, now listen, I am no engineer. I do have a degree. It is not in engineering. Um, But if I was, I'll tell you this, I would have not made the need for bread so daily. Do you know what I'm saying? If I am an engineer and I'm building things, uh, most people I know, if you are in an engineering business, you are building for the most self-sustaining item that you can possibly build. You want something with the longest battery life. You want something with the fewest amount of fuel stops, the, the least need for replenishment. You don't want that, right? We just want to keep rolling. Efficiency is key. I don't know if you traveled the way my husband and I do. It is true. I did ride on the back of a motorcycle with him. For We had a, a motorcycle for 37 years, went to a lot of vineyard conference. I detest helmets. I'm so sorry to all of you medical people. If I'm going to die, I'm going out glorified. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Because here's the deal, you know, um, I feel like the, the experience with a helmet on a motorcycle ruins it like wearing a helmet in a convertible would. What is the purpose? You know what I'm saying? I'm on the back of the bike to feel the wind in my hair. But, it, but at any rate, that's the, that's the kind of way. But when we travel, my husband does not like to stop. And he really can't stand to go backwards. So if we pass that Dairy Queen, can I tell you, friends, we are not going back to it. We're hunting for the next one, and it may be 200 miles down the road, but we cannot go backwards. It feels like we're, and we, do, we don't stop, as, you know, we do not want to stop, right? We, we don't want to replenish. We want to just keep on going. Now, listen, when God designed us, think about this. This is, this is not an accident. He is the God of the universe, and he could have made us any way he wanted. He could have made us with the two-week battery life right? I mean, he could have done that with like an electric motor or something. I don't know, something that did not need daily bread. But you know what? God is not Elon Musk. (laughs) And more importantly, Elon Musk is not God. Someone needed to hear that today, right? Okay. But I mean, I, I believe in engineers that are doing their best, but you know what? God made bread so doggone daily. It is just crazy, okay? And we, and we need sleep every day. As a matter of fact, we need sleep so often that he turns out the lights to remind us. And yet we engineer as much as we can to keep the lights on so that we don't have to listen to those natural rhythms that he gives us, right? There's just this daily thing. The physical fuel and resources that he gives us is a daily kind of bread. And I don't know about you, but has anybody considered the longevity of bread these days? How many of you bought bread and been a little surprised at how long it lasted? Are you frightened by Now, when I make homemade bread, right? I was raised Mennonite, and I know how to make homemade bread. And yes, we ate ice cream every single morning for breakfast and for snack and for evening snack. I mean, it was just one of those things. It's a Mennonite problem, but whatever. 
But when I make homemade bread, it grows mold in like, you know, I don't know, like eight and a half hours. You know what I'm saying? And a homemade donut is even worse. If you make a homemade donut, the shelf life on that baby is like mm, 30 minutes. And then it's like a, a large stick of some sort. But, but when it comes to bread, when you make something from scratch, from natural resources, it naturally molds. It naturally goes bad. But yet that stuff I've been buying, it sits, I mean, there's a, we're empty nesters now. And so we don't replenish as often as we need to. And sometimes the bread just sits there and I'm like, Still going. I, I don't know. That, so you know, it's like three weeks old. I'm frightened by that. Okay, I'm not sure that stuff is really, really bread. Um, because, but the dailiness of bread is very specific, and we're going to find that in Exodus 16. Are you with me? I'm going to read through this passage, and uh, I'll, I'll buzz through a little bit, but there, I didn't want to cut out too much. Um, in case you don't know what's happening, God has brought the children of Israel out of um, their captivity and slavery, and now they're in the middle of a desert, probably a million or so people, I don't know the exact numbers on that, and guess what there is to eat in a desert? Nothing. And the people are grumbling about it, and so this is what happens. Then the Lord said to Moses in verse 4, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. Let's say that again. In the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. That was the meat that they were going to have. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? They did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer, that's a measurement, for each person to, um, that you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had exactly what they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. And they kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Every morning they gathered as much as they needed. When the sun grew hot and melted away, and on the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers per person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath, re Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever's left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day there will not be any. Nevertheless... Some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instruction? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days and everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. And so the children rested on the seventh day. 
Now, besides the fact that the Israelites are naughty children, right, and that they cannot follow directions, all right, I'm interested in the reasons why God would set things up the way he does, why it is that he would give a daily bread in this manner to these people, right? Because that's not the only, the only way that it could have happened. Furthermore, what was it that would cause people to go out and gather more than they were supposed to get and to keep it for the next day? And I think the first thing, for, for me, I would be like, well, either uh, I'm trying to save my labor for the next day, but basically I'm just afraid I'm going to run out. I'm just afraid I'm going to run out. You know, what if I feel snacky at 2 a.m.? You know, I don't know. Maybe there's no ice cream in the freezer. I don't know. I you know if I'm snacky. So, so I think our fear of what our needs are going to be is the reason that, that this happens. Another thing, and I, I've thought about this. Some of you are entrepreneurs in here. You know who you are. And you see a business opportunity when it's sitting out there. And you're going, listen, I'm, I'm an Israelite slave and I've got seven kids. And I send them all out there and I tell them all to gather double. And we pool it all together. And now I create this little economy and now I begin to sell my extra manna to the people around me. Do you understand what I mean? This actually combats ambition. The idea of daily bread does a couple of things. It challenges anybody's fear because they learn that God is good at his word. He gives bread every day. And on the day that he said he wasn't going to, there isn't any there, but he provided you extra on the front end, not on the back end, right? And, and he says, and I'm not going to let you trade and, and make a commodity out of my daily bread. I'm giving this to you for your sustenance. So, number one, God provides daily for this reason, to show his glory, to show us his glory. It says, in the morning you will see my glory. And this happens because our daily bread is necessary because we have daily needs. What is it that you keep on hand because you're afraid of running out? You know, do you, do you keep extra ice cream in the freezer? I don't know your life. You know, you, are you worried about ketchup? Do you keep ketchup around? You know, are you, are you a cook? Are you afraid of running out of salt? I mean, what would ruin your day that you're running out of? What are you tempted to keep on hand because you can't risk running out of whatever that item is and that you're taking care of? See, I don't think God is really interested in us managing all of these things on our own. Sometimes God is absolutely an 11th hour God. And it scares us to death. It's like, we're just about out. We're going to run out. We're, go we're not going to have enough. Something's going to happen. And yet God shows up. And he brings, he is right on time with his power and his provision. And when that happens, you know it's him. You know that he is the one. And I believe that the pressure we feel to accumulate things, to store up, to save up, to hoard can indicate our own sense of what makes us feel secure, right? It indicates where our security lies. Or it can demonstrate that we're not sure he's going to come through this time. 
Now, I have to admit, I was raised in a, in a family with a really strong work ethic, and, and my view of God was shaped by the way I was raised, and, and I, I grew up to love and to honor God, and I never want to disappoint Him, and I want to work really hard and make sure. So, so my, and, and here's a word that was never permitted in our home. We were never, we could never use the word proud, okay? It was considered the highest sin that there was, and... Um, my father was the proudest man I've ever met, but he never ever told me that he was proud of me. And I didn't need it because I knew. Do you understand what I mean? He didn't have to tell me that. He did not have to tell me that he was proud. I already knew that, that he had all of, that, all of that going on. And I was raised in that house where I, want, I was afraid to even ask God for things I need because I'm like, I, I need to do my work, I need to do what's expected of me, and make God proud of me, and then not ask him for anything. And then on the rare occasion that I do ask him for something, here's my weird math. I feel like there's a shelf in heaven that has a few things on it that Janice can have when she asks for them. And when I ask for them and I get them, now the shelf is empty. Do you understand what I'm saying? And now I don't, now somebody else is, I, I can't ask for any more. Like I, he, he, he bailed me out that time. That's all I get. But right? I had this really strange view of grace. I don't know if that resonates with any of you in here. Or sometimes you're just, the daily is such a big deal because you're so concerned with having to earn and do all of these things on your own. And that's where the sense of security comes from. And you're just not sure he's going to come through again. So you have to take care of your own needs. Are you with me? I'm not saying that very clearly, but you understand what I mean? This need to take care of it all yourself. That takes me to Luke 12. You, you don't have to bounce there if you can. I think it'll show up here. Luke 12, 16 through 21 is a parable that Jesus told. He said this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. And then who will get all the things you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now we can work on that rich toward God thing all day long, but when we begin to count on the things that we have stored up, or like King David who counted his men and to make sure that he had enough fighting men, or when we lay awake at night fretting about what we have and what we don't have, we are ultimately trusting in our own resources or our own ability to get those and, and to, to manage that and then pretending that that's just God wanting us to be Dave Ramsey about stuff. In Oklahoma, there, uh, when we were in Oklahoma, we pastored out there for 10 years and there was, uh, in, our, in our church, there was a very wealthy family farming group. And, um, and the head of that family, um, they had huge contracts. They had contracts with Popeye spinach and they had contracts with free, they raised potatoes for all the potato chips you eat, Frito-Lay potato chips. It was a massive operation. And I'll never forget that man was such a godly man and he told my husband, he said, whenever I signed checks for the business, I made them print underneath it that it's my name manager. Now, legitimately, the IRS considers him an owner. 
But for him, he said, it's very important for me to see that word manager every time I sign a check. To recognize that this isn't really mine. All of this stuff, I am managing these resources that God has put under me and to make sure that I'm doing that in the right way. Now listen, as we talk about storing up and the dailiness of bread and all the rest of it, I got I to gotta admit to you, at my age, I mean, he was hinting a little bit, I'm 58, it's all right, all right, in my late 50s, there's a tension, right? Because all of my friends are like, you know, giving up work for Lent, you know what I'm saying? They're, they're like quitting and, and retiring and doing all the things and, and they've counted down their days and all the rest of it. And there's this tension that I feel when I think about God and, and the daily bread about as an orderly, responsible, sometimes compulsive, well-meaning American believer, isn't it my duty to God and mankind to fund a well-vested 401k, right? To Dave Ramsey my way through life, to provide an education uh, for my children, weddings, inheritance to my five children and the eight plus grandchildren that, that may come, to live a modest life and rarely vacation um, while I prepare all of these things, to restrict personal indulgence, right? There's the tension to do that or or do I live life fully in the now, an abundant Parisos life, as we read about in John, which means, you know, living within my means for sure, helping others within my means for sure, because tomorrow has enough worries of its own, and I don't know when my life is going to be required of me, right? Is American retirement even a godly concept? I'm kind of a, you know, my first life was a historian. Well, that was me and my second life. As a historian, American retirement is a rather recent invention when you get right down to it, right? The idea, and is that really an effort to never have to depend on anyone else in life, right? Have you ever talked to someone and they say, I owe no one anything. I depend on no one for anything. And I've become pretty secure in who I am to the point that I really don't even rely on God for anything. And, and what does that mean as, as I work toward that? Is it an effort to, to, to manage my resources well or to make sure that I'm never in need of daily bread because I've got that stored up? And what does it mean to be rich toward God in the now and the not yet? Now listen, I'm not here to tell you to cash out your 401k and give it all away. I am here to tell you that we've done that a couple times for the kingdom, and God has totally restored that because I believe he called us to do that in that moment. But I know that I don't want my daily needs to be defined by what it takes to keep myself clothed and well-fed by American standards here and now, right? Because daily needs keep us at the mercy of our creator, they do. They keep us at the mercy. If we no longer have daily needs, then we've begun to depend on something else. And what is that? Because depending on God for something every day, talk to anyone in a third world country, depending on God for something every day provides you an opportunity to see God's glory. 
It gives you an opportunity to see his glory. We talked to someone on a mission trip that, you know, they had a, a truck that looked like it wasn't going to make it three miles down the road and they needed to take it several hundred miles down the road. And we're like, what do you guys do for mechanics? And they're like, we don't have enough mechanics. When, when the thing breaks down, we all bail out. We go to the front, we lay hands on it, we pray for it, and then we get back in and we go a little bit further. God is their mechanic. You understand what I'm saying? To some degree, we have so much stuff that we can't even see God's glory. We don't even give an opportunity to see God's glory. So, first of all, why did God create us with daily needs? To show his glory. Number two, God provides daily to stay in relationship with us. To stay in relationship with us. Now, listen, I cannot find, maybe somebody here smarter than me can, can tell me, I cannot find chapter and verse on a God wants to have a relationship with you. I cannot find that verse. But the concept, the truth of that is throughout Scripture. It's all over Scripture, right? Listen to this. In the ancient world, no other deity that the pagans were worshiping sought a relationship with its people. That is a unique trait that Jehovah God had in the Old Testament times, right? Think about what you've read in the Bible about the gods that people worshiped. People cut themselves to please their God. They sacrificed children to them. They danced. They caroused to get their God's attention. They screamed at them. All of that was something that pagans did with their gods because it was not a relationship in any way. And then when God calls Abraham in Genesis to take his only son Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And I don't know about you, but that's really, I have so much trouble with God on that. Why in the world did you do that? Why would you ever, now it's like, okay, he didn't follow through, yay. But why did he ask somebody to sacrifice a child to him? Here's the interesting part. This wasn't strange to Abraham's ears. That's what God's did. That's the way God's behaved. God's invited people to bring their children and sacrifice to them. So this wasn't an odd thing to him. But what happens, obviously, is when they get up there, God will not allow him to sacrifice Isaac. He provides a different sacrifice, and this is what's going on. The Abba Father, the Creator God, demonstrates who he is in that moment by refusing to receive a child sacrifice. He sets himself apart from every other God in that moment. It is a standout moment. He distances himself from all other pagan gods that the people worshiped by not allowing Abraham to sacrifice. From there on out, Abraham can say, we have a God and he will not accept child sacrifice. That will never be a thing. This is a huge thing because we serve a God who cares. We serve a God who provides. There is no other God who fed their people in a desert with bread from heaven. There's no ancient stories about that. Pagans were always seeking reprieve from their gods, begging for attention, seeking rain. But the Hebrew God, he delivered. He was a deliverer from slavery. He provided water, meat, and bread in the desert. He delivered from sin and the consequences of our sin. He cares for the lonely and the brokenhearted, and he invites us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, Micah 6.8, because God has always sought relationship with his creation. See, the dailiness of God's provision created relationship. 
You see it in the garden when he visits Adam and Eve. You see it when he talks to Moses as a friend. You see it when he refers to us as the bride of Christ. You don't marry someone you're not in relationship with, right? That's a relationship. He, he refers to this when he describes our unfaithfulness as an infidelity. That's a big deal. The dailiness of God's provision creates relationship. And there's importance about this daily factor. Now, I've told you I have five grown children, and, um, and they're all, they've all done the godly thing, right? They chose their wife and left their parents, and they went away. And, and that's the way it's supposed to be, right? We are empty nesters. That is the way it's supposed to be. And yet there are times when I'm like, oh, I miss them. You know what I mean? I don't miss parenting. I, I, I don't miss that part, right? It, parenting ends. In case you didn't know that, it ends. It has to end. Quit telling 40-year-old children what to do, right? Leave them alone. Let them make their poor choices. Give them advice when they ask for it, and that's about it, right? You don't get to do that, right? But there's a different rhythm with adult children. And for a time, uh, in recent years, there was about a three-year period of time when we had at least three, sometimes four children that were within driving distance and could get away for lunch. And we called this Taco Tuesday. Now, it was, there were no spouses, it was just the kids, and we'd be like, okay, we're meeting at Casa at this day, you know, show up, we're going to be there, they were expecting us, and you know, it's a whomping 45 minutes where we all knew we were getting, the waiters knew us, and we buzz in there, and we have a little chit-chat and, and whatever, and there were days when I felt too busy for that, and I'm like, it's going to go away, there's going to be a time when I don't have this, and it's now, right, because now they've all moved on, and, the, and then we don't have that availability anymore. I want you to know something about how a parent my age feels about being with their kids. I can get them to all come together for a three-hour event, whether it's Thanksgiving or a birthday gathering or whatever, and I'm telling you that that does not take the place of the relationship that is built by seeing them every Tuesday for 45 minutes. You understand what I'm saying? The rhythm of being with someone more regularly for a less amount of time is more powerful than the big block of time. Does this help us in terms of church attendance? You know what I'm saying? Coming together on Sunday morning is great. Please do that. Please come back tomorrow morning, right? Or go to your home church, wherever you are. But if that's the only time you've got for God, there needs to be a daily in there, right? Your relationship will be enhanced so much by regular intervals that are more closely tied together than by doing one big block of time at one place because the dailiness of God's provision creates relationship. For that matter, do you have a relationship in your life that is strained? Please tell me there's somebody in here that does. Don't raise your hand. But you know what I'm saying? It might be the person next to you. Do you know what I mean? Most of us have at least a relationship or two that is not as smooth as we wish it was, right? And have you ever been in that place where it's just starting to get strained? Like when you still have a chance to do something about it, it hasn't like calcified, you still have a chance to do something about it? I was talking with uh, someone when we first planted the church, there were two young couples that were really close and, and when we planted the church, things got dicey between the two of them. And this gal said something that stuck with me and it was really wise. And she said, yeah, you know, we've been getting kind of irritated with this other couple. She goes, we probably just need to spend more time with them. Bam. Are you kidding me? Yeah. When you feel a relationship begin to strain, don't give in to that distance, right? Spend more time because the more you do, the more you write fiction in your head. 
And the more things begin to spiral out of control that maybe weren't there to get, you wait long enough and you can't even heal that thing very well. Relationship is a daily kind of thing. The more closely those meetings are together, the better for the relationship, right? So if God provides us on the day, for us on the daily, why wouldn't we respond to him on the daily? Why wouldn't we talk to Jesus every day? Why wouldn't we read his word every day? Why wouldn't we come to these doggone meetings every day? There's something about that. It builds upon itself, all right? It's about relationship. Number three. And this might be a little more controversial. God provides daily what we each need. Remember, some gathered much, some gathered little. Everybody had exactly what they needed. I don't know where we got the idea. Well, I know where it comes from because I studied government. But I don't know where we got the idea that everybody has to have exactly the same amount of stuff. God never treated anybody that way. Some people have more, some people have less. People with more need to know how to give. People with less need to not get salty about it. There's all kinds of things and ways that we grow based on the differences that are there, all right? We each have to run our own race. Matthew 25, uh, 14 through 30, another parable. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, uh, to another one, all right, let me do that again so you get the math right, all right? He gave to one, one man, he gave five talents. To another man, he gave two. And to another man, he gave one to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once, traded with them, and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents went and made two talents more. But he who had received only one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. And now after a long time, the master of the servant came and settled accounts with him. And then obviously he was not happy with the one who, I didn't include the rest of it, but he wasn't happy with the one who didn't do anything with his money. He said, you could have at least gone and put it on in the bank and gotten interest on it, all right? None of these guys got the exact same amount of money. This is not a story about equality. This is not a parable about economic socialism. This is not a parable about compassion for the poor. Jesus did not use as an example of the guy with the five talents sharing with the others. Right? That wasn't what the, what the story was about. So let's do math, shall we? Can we do math? I wish I had a wipe off board, but I didn't ask for it. So here we go. Right? Let's do math in your head. One guy has five. One guy has two. One guy has one. How many do we have? Eight, talent, eight talents all together. Now, if the goal was economic equality, you would divide those, and what would you have? Divided by three. I know it's fractions. It's hard. Right? If you did it all together, it would be 2.6666 or two and two-thirds, right? That's kind of rough. We're not doing that, right? So that clearly wasn't a goal. What about this? What if the guy with five had only, he didn't double his money. What if he'd only gained two? So now he has seven. The guy with two doubles his money. He gets four. And let's just say that the last guy did what he was supposed to. He took his one and he doubled it and he has two. So now you have two, you have four, and you have seven. This guy is still way ahead, right? He's still got plenty of money. And yet who would the master have been unhappy with? This guy. This is the one who wasn't living up to his potential. 
He wasn't, it wasn't about equality. It was about what everybody was doing with what God had given them. Now hear me on this. Some of you in here have more than the people next to you in terms of skill set, natural gifting, um, resources, the ability to get resources. Some of you have all of those things that God can and will use to take you higher economically, socially than the people sitting around you, okay? And yet some of you who are there, the five talent people are phoning it in. Some of you are quiet quitting. Some of you are doing just enough to stay ahead of the people next to you who don't have as much anyway. Do you know what I mean? Highly productive people can be highly productive. And if God has given you those gifts and he's given you those skills and he's given you a circumstance where you have the ability to do a lot, we dare not give up on that potential because he has gifted us in that way. God is asking more from us. On the other hand, there may be some of us sitting in here who have less resources than the person next to us. And we know it. We know we have fewer skills than the person sitting next to us. We don't have the natural giftings that somebody else has that is taking them places. We don't have the natural circumstances. Life has treated you hard for some reason or another. You do not have all of that going on for you. And you're just making excuses. And you're just going, well, I don't have as much as anybody else. So I'm feeling a little salty about that, so I'm not going to do anything. The enemy wants us to compare amongst ourselves to create discontentment among us um, and, to, uh, and in some cases to create complacency. And I'm telling you that the enemy is out there to do that. God is determined to give us our daily bread. And he wants us to use what he has given us and not worry about whether or not is enough if it matches what our neighbor has. Because he's the one who's giving all of those gifts. God is determined to give us our daily bread, which may or may not be as much as your neighbor's. So keep your eye on the prize. Run the race that God sets before you. Stay in your lane and learn to give it all. I have a nephew cousin I know that's not a real term, but it's hard to call him my nephew's first cousin once removed or whatever. He's my first cousin's kid. How about that? He's my first cousin's kid. And uh, he's an odd child because he likes to run. <laughs> he likes to run a long way, like 100 miles at a time. He's one of those 100 milers, right? I know, it's strange. Maybe some of you are in here like that. I don't know. Anyway, um, I'm intrigued by this, right? Um, so in his 20s, I think he was in his 20s, right before he got married, we knew that he was going to be running in the Keys. He was going to be doing the 100-miler in the Keys. He had five brothers and sisters, and a bunch of them are medical people, physical trainers and whatnot, and the whole family was, you know, kind of like, all right, Aaron's going to run this thing. It's going to be great. And I'm keeping up. It was a 24-hour race. And so I'm keeping up with it on Facebook, and, and, you know, and I'm watching all the posts and praying for this kid, and he's going to make it, and he's doing so great. And he, and he did really well. He got tired around mile 75. Shocker. You know, 
Well, surprise, right? Now it's starting to get dark and he's got to make it all the way down into the keys and people are starting to worry about him and they're, you know, like rubbing him down. I mean, he's starting to get glassy eyed, whatever. And uh, the next picture I see, one of his brothers who did not train to run 100 miles, all right? One of his brothers jumps in and runs with him and paces, right? And, I, and, and I'm like, what does that mean? One of my other cousins, Mennonite cousins, like, what does pacing mean? And she said, and, th- and this applies to so many things I'm not preaching about tonight, but, but keep this in mind. He's like, you run with someone and you take care of all the obstacles and navigate for them so that all they have to concentrate on is putting one foot in front of the other. Dude, that is what we do when people are grieving. You ever notice that? When people are grieving, you just do all the regular stuff in life so that all they have to worry about is leaning into their grief. We keep their laundry going. We keep, right, okay, anyway. So, so the, the, the first brother runs and he's, you know, he can only run 10 miles and, he's, and he peters out. Next brother jumps in, runs with him again. He has enough brothers to get him to the finish line. Isn't that a great story? One brother can run 100 miles. He's got that potential. Other brother don't got that potential, but he gave his all. He gave 10. We get credit for that. But when we sit around going, I don't have as much daily bread as everybody else, what, what is that? What is that? Or when we're like, we can do a whole lot of things, but we're not going to because I don't have to or whatever. And God is saying, come on, I gave you a gift. I gave you daily bread. I gave you as much as you need. Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with the daily bread that God has put in your lap? What is it that he has given to you, and what are you going to do with it? I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite Steve to come up. Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We pray you were impacted by this message. God bless, and see you next time.